0: Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs and money experts. With the topic of money becoming increasingly more mainstream, financial journalism has played a key role in opening up the conversation around money, providing engaging and easily consumable content. Through magazines and articles, financial journalism can break down money taboos, amplify different voices, and give consumers a platform to be heard. My guest today is Laura Waitley, an award winning journalist and author of the Sunday best selling book, Money, a User's Guide. This is the essential guide to financially empower and educate millennials and Gen Z on the principles of money management, and now with a new chapter added for 2021. In this episode, we take a look at some of the generation defining money issues millennials face today the housing crisis, problem debt, and saving for the future, the impact social media has on our spending, and what a career in financial journalism has taught Laura about her own personal finances and relationship with money. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Hi, Laura. Hey,
1: Emily. How are you today? I'm good, considering it's Monday <laughs> in January, and we're in lockdown. <laughs> I could Even, be feeling in
0: uh, the, the current circumstances. <laughs> but it was so nice to hear your voice, actually, this morning. We haven't seen each other for a while. I think last time we had a, a coffee at the wing in London.
1: Yeah, I know. It feels like a different life ago, doesn't it?
0: Different life. But you know, that's okay. New Year, we'll, you know, we'll, do, we'll do our best. But I really wanted to have you on the podcast. Because first of all, you know, you haven't been on the wallet already and we were waiting for your I mean, it's not a new book, but it's your book money, uh, you know, Sunday Times bestseller. And there's a new chapter in this book, you released it on I think it was on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. Yeah, Christmas Eve, it came out. Wow, that's like the best Christmas present. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure people were rushing to the shops, especially because they weren't open. But um, I think the idea was it has come out in time for the new year if people want to think about their finances in this crazy time. So as you said, yeah, the the book came out in 2018. So quite a lot of stuff has changed. Obviously, the world's changed, but also quite a few numbers and figures and like how much tax you pay, all that kind of stuff obviously changes year on year. So I wanted to update some of that for 2021. And also, I've done this extra chapter on work rights, which felt appropriate for the situation that we're living in. And the fact that lots of people have been questioning their jobs, but also worried about pay and redundancy and things like that.
0: Yeah. And and I think I I mean, that makes me think that I need to do the same for my book. <laughs> yeah, you're right about, you know, taxes. But what, what I love about your book is like, You know, this essential book that you can have on your desk, you can just pick it up, check one chapter and, you know, you can keep it for five years, 10 years, even if the rules are changing. I think the principles of of money management are still going to be the same. The first version of the book did really well. Can you tell us, you know, how did did that happen?
1: Yeah. (laughs) So the book came about kind of out of luck, really. So I was a journalist at The Times for many years on The Money Desk. And I was approached in 20, so I guess it was the beginning of 2018 by Michelle Kane, who's my editor at Fourth Estate, which is an amazing publisher. It's part of HarperCollins, and she said, "Oh, you know, I, I'd like to publish a book on money. Would you be interested?" And it coincided with an interesting time in sort of my life and my work journey, if you like. It was exactly 10 years after I'd started at The Times, and. That was in 2008, which was a few weeks after uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed and right in the middle of the financial crisis. So I think it was quite an interesting time to look back on what had happened for millennials and Gen Z since the financial crisis. And people were still feeling and obviously still are feeling the effects of it. So it was a kind of great meeting with Michelle and, and, and it got me thinking and we produced this book which came out in late 2018. And in terms of its success, it's been a surprise, obviously. But part of me is also, it's kind of a mixture of surprise, but not surprised because obviously I didn't expect it to be a Sunday Times bestseller. You know, it's really cool that I'd written this. But on the other hand, i and I'm sure you agree, because obviously your book's done really well and, and you're in this space too, that there's a real appetite for better financial education and better financial information that's broken down in a way it's easy to consume, which was part of the reason that I created a book, I guess, and, and it was packaged up in the way it has been packaged. And also, you'll know from having written a book that it's a team effort. And I'm sure Money User's Guide has done well because it looks really nice. Jack designed the cover so well, jumps off the shelf. And also, you know, Fourth of State is a brilliant publisher. They put a lot behind getting it out there into people's hands. So it's kind of a, a combination, I think, um, when you publish a book of having it puts in front of people, people realizing it exists, but also creating something that's useful.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a massive effort. And I, I remember meeting you, I think, for the first time, and, and you already had published your book, mine was, you know, printing, and I thought it was extremely stressful, you know, the, the last few weeks before publication, because you've given the copy to your, your final, you know, edit to the publisher, it's done, you can't touch it anymore. Mm. It's printing, and then you're just waiting. And you know, you have a few press articles that are going to come out but a few people have read the book a lot of people have helped obviously on the book but you don't know how it's gonna do if people are gonna like it and you told me, Don't worry, it's only getting better, you know, a <laughs> after publication. And I was so true. <laughs> so it's it's quite a journey also to to write a book. You also wrote the American version of, mm. of your book last year, and now this updated version. Does it get easier? Do you think you're gonna be, you know, writing more books? What's the process?
1: It is so stressful. I agree. I remember that meeting. And I was so stressed when it when the book came out, just because There's like the process of writing and, you know, sometimes I feel funny talking about writing books because it's a a very practical book about money. It's very different from writing a novel or writing a very personal memoir, for example. So in some senses, I imagine that must be much more stressful because you're putting so much of yourself on the page to be out there and exposed. Whereas I had the shield a little bit of like, look, this is practical, this is helpful. <laughs> um, so that that helped a little bit, but nonetheless, you do feel quite stressed because you're, the process of writing something so long is very isolated, right? You're on your own, you're on your laptop. Obviously, I was interviewing people and speaking to people, but you're kind of just getting on with it and it takes a really long time and then you have to promote it and really put yourself out there and, and talk about it go on podcasts and do lots of articles so I think that that is kind of strange I'm sure I've listened to lots of interesting interviews with authors since I've entered this world of books and they all say the same thing that that's really difficult to put yourself out there having been in isolation while working on a book so I don't know whether it gets any easier so the American book was a challenge a huge challenge actually. So I wanted to translate it to be published in the States. But obviously, the money system is very different. And like you said earlier, the fundamentals about personal finance are universal. And it has been interesting for me to meet and talk to those Americans. And luckily, I managed to get to America, end of 2019, uh, and meet people out there. And I was quite surprised by how, you know, how many similarities there are, worries about housing crisis, for example, um, worries about debt, but that obviously some of the nuts and bolts of the financial system in the States is very different. They have really different student loans, for example, absolutely awful for so many students and graduates in the States, how much debt they have. Medical debt is a, obviously a huge issue that we don't luckily face over here. So yeah, I had to learn fast. So writing that was more of a challenge and, and more stressful than I thought it might be. And yeah, I'm hoping to embark all I am starting to write another book which is really exciting but I've got real blank page fear of of starting again because a lot goes into it and having been a journalist for lots of years and writing like quite short articles to deadline it's a very different skill to be able to create something much longer that hangs together being able to edit huge numbers of words it's, it's different to writing a newspaper feature for sure.
0: Yeah I, I agree with you the um, editing is is quite a big piece and you know we don't necessarily think about it when we write the first version of the book. And I think for me, what was quite hard is also mapping the book. So, you know, based on, you know, what's the mission of the book, trying to break it down into like smaller parts. Once I had done that, I I think that was easier. And then you have lots of, you know, ideas and there's so many things you want to put in the book, but you don't want it to end up being like a you know thousand <laughs> pages. So trying to you know select and and, and summarize and stuff, and I found I find it quite quite hard.
1: Oh, it's so hard, yeah. Kill your darlings, etc. Like having to just delete stuff, or yeah, knowing what to leave out is as important as knowing what it, what to put in, isn't it? And the editing yeah. is such a long process. And it's so hard to keep hold of it, I found, or I am finding, writing again. You have lots of different ideas and just to give yourself enough time and, and sort of keep track of where you are. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a new skill I've, I've had to learn. Yeah. I am in the yeah. process of learning.
0: And I want to talk about you know, your journey. So writing the books and what have you learned by educating others financially? And also we'll cover, you know, what what are your top tips? What's, you know, what's the most interesting part maybe of personal finance for you? So maybe if we start by what have you learned um, during your journey, educating people financially by writing, speaking, by doing all the things you do?
1: I've learned loads. Part of writing the book and what I put in Money came from what I'd learned in journalism, so I started, like I said, writing about money in 2008 when I was very young, and it was a bit of a baptism of fire because I started my first proper job on a national newspaper. I knew basically nothing at at the beginning about money, and (laughs) luckily I was very junior admin role, so I didn't need to know lots. But then I was interviewing people over many years, financial advisors, people who worked in investment, mortgage brokers, and lots and lots of readers. And I wrote the Times Troubleshooter column for eight and a bit, eight or nine years until 2019, and that was a weekly column in the Saturday Money section. And in that, people would write in with their problems, uh, consumer affairs problems, so that had a lot about Ryanair, for example, or energy, <laughs> energy bills, or older people who've been defrauded. And through that process, I had so many letters. I spoke to so many people. I learned a lot about what people didn't know, I guess, but also a lot about the financial system and financial products and how complicated they can be and, and how also a lot of them are sold on the basis that if you know what you're doing, you will do well. And if you don't, you'll lose out. It'll cost you more. You can make some very expensive mistakes. So having learned that in journalism, I, I felt A real kind of sense that I wanted to communicate that to as many people as possible and perhaps beyond people who would read the financial pages of newspapers, because often people who pick up money sections are people who know what they're doing or, you know, who feel quite comfortable with these topics. So I learned a lot as a journalist, but actually writing the book, which I very much wrote for my kind of younger self and my friends and my sister when I was you know, thinking about what to include and how to stretch the chapters for example like what would I want to know and in that process I did learn a lot for myself and it kind of clarified where I'd been going wrong and since since publishing it obviously over the last couple of years I've spoken to lots maybe more younger people about money than I did interviewing people for the times and it's been really striking how many people struggle with the emotions around money However much they have, I mean, I'm yet to meet anybody who asked me what I do at the job or has, you know, talked to me about the book and hasn't said, oh, my God, I'm terrible with money. People who are really competent, really seemingly very together, people who own their own home or have got good salaries. So they're clearly not making huge mistakes constantly, but still feel really uncomfortable about the topic. So that's been a bit of an eye opener. But also, I think in a way, it's helped me feel better about my own what I think is a bit of lack of confidence around money ironically because obviously it's something that I have been called or become something of an expert in but that doesn't mean that I don't struggle with it and still struggle with it a little bit so yeah I've learned a lot about myself I think writing and clarifying and you know now when I'm writing articles about different topics through the pandemic for example I've written a lot about and the help that's available Or, you know, the way that the pandemic has been changing our financial attitudes. And it's actually been an interesting exercise in reflection for myself and how my attitudes to money might have been changing over the last few years or months. So that that's a guess positive side effect of the work that I do.
0: No, it's it's super positive. And I think it's it's really important to do the work of answering questions, listening to, you know, people and their and their issue because that's often when we think about, you know, uh, the banking system, financial institutions, we don't f- Think that we have a voice as a consumer, so I think you know financial journalism and and is actually a good way of you know listening to other stories, understanding how you know people around you are doing, and, and having a bit more of a perspective on money. And I love the fact that you know money is now becoming more and more mainstream, and we see it. I mean. F- financial journalism has been there for a long time, but not necessarily in, you know, magazines and stuff like that. And now we see more and more money articles that are a bit more, yeah, mainstream mass market. And that's, I think that's quite nice actually to see more people writing about money from, you know, different perspectives and different voices.
1: Yeah, I think it's amazing. I'm, it's change, and it's changed a lot. Obviously, I've now been writing about money long enough that I can see a, a shift in the way it's been presented or, or and definitely compared to like 2008 2009 2010 to now there are so many different voices different kinds of money writing and different ways it's it's being put out there which is great really cool
0: yeah and you've decided to uh so you worked at the times for a very long time and now you're a freelancer so you're working for different publications you're obviously promoting your book writing books you've been speaking i guess also working with with corporates what made you go to the, you know, take like a more freelance journey and what are maybe the the advantages, but also the challenges of doing that?
1: So I've been actually been freelance for quite a long time. So I was sort of a reporter at, on the money desk. As lots of people who work in media will know, often having a staff job or being casual or doing shifts, it's all, there's different ways of being on a newspaper. So I was never staff, but I used to go in every day. And I guess about six or seven years ago, I had been mostly writing for money, but then I started doing a bit of travel writing, at The Times so with a bit of a money-saving angle. and I was writing also for the property section. And I really enjoyed the variety, and I felt that if I became properly freelance, rather than kind of defining my job more and aiming for much more of a staff job in one particular area, that I could have a bit more variety, I get bored easily. So I wanted to be able to cover lots of different subjects. And I wanted to be able to travel more, which I, up until this year, sadly, managed (laughs) to do. So I was doing lots of travel journalism alongside money writing. So that was part of my motivation. But I continued to write the Times column and and was writing mostly articles for the Times until the book came out. And then obviously the book created a bit of a different path. And like you say, it's been quite exciting because I've been doing not just writing journalism, but also doing events, unfortunately now all online, so quite Zoom fatigue and meeting different kinds of people. And and I think also the way that we work has changed even in the period since I've graduated from university so when I was at university Twitter Instagram WhatsApp didn't exist Uh, Facebook I remember Facebook arriving in my second year of university (laughs) and it was very much just like stalking ex-boyfriends and looking at like (laughs) messaging people you fancy that was basically the only reason it existed and obviously now the way we work has changed so much that it's much easier to have more of a blended freelance career where you do different kinds of writing and also journalism has become reasonably precarious. So I think having fingers and lots of different pies is a good idea. So that's partly why I've become more freelance. I've stopped writing the Troubleshooting column. I'd done it for many years and I really loved doing it, but it was a big commitment and um, I felt like I'd I'd spent enough time on it and it was time to do something a bit different. I used to get so many letters and some people's problems are so huge. You feel sort of guilt at not having long enough to really delve in to people's to people's problems. You kind of need it to be a full-time job, really. So I, in some senses, I love freelance life, but I think this year especially, it's been hard because it is quite uncertain and lonely at times. So I have no idea what the next five years look like, for example. And I think the money side of it is challenging because you've not got a regular income coming in. Part of that I like because... I always have that sense of like, oh, maybe I'll earn a bit more money this year than I thought I would. Or there's a bit more opportunity to see the relationship between money and time than there is when you've got a full time salaried job. So you think, oh, if I just put in a few more hours, I can earn a bit more or actually I value my time more. So I'm not going to do that job. But that comes with its anxieties too. Uh, especially during the pandemic, I think for lots of people who are self-employed.
0: No, I, I think yeah, reduction of earnings and and also the the discipline. I guess when you're when you're freelance, of you know, deciding okay, how much money am I going to save, how much money am I going to invest, but also how much I'm going to spend, and and it's sort of managing two budgets also. So your own like freelancer budget, your business budget, but also or your business plan, and also like your personal finances. So. I mean, how how do you combine the two and how, how do you manage that?
1: It is really hard because it takes much more time. And like I said, and maybe it's the nature of the kind of freelance work that I do, that it's very immediate. You do one article, you get paid for one article. So that kind of, there's always a temptation to do a little bit more work and say yes to another project. And actually you have to be a bit brave and say no sometimes in order to have enough time to manage your finances, because otherwise, you you know, you don't, if you don't carve out enough time to think about yourself as a business and think about your personal finances and your business finances as being separate, I think it can all be a bit overwhelming. I mean, practically, I very much, um, I'm a bit of a spender. So I very much have to be strict about how much I want to save and put it away up front. You know, obviously I have to save for tax, but also, you know, thinking about a pension, for example, I have to set up my own pension and make sure that I'm keeping on top of that myself because no one else is going to do it for me. I have a separate bank account where all my money that I earn goes into. And then I have a, another account that my spending comes out of and another one that my saving goes into. So I'm very much a multiple accounts <laughs> pay myself first. Don't let it be there for me to spend that's the only way that, that I manage it. But I'm not saying that there's an irony. And we've talked about this before. People often assume that somehow because I write about money, I'm brilliant at it in my own life. <laughs> and just because I know what I should do doesn't mean I'm very good at doing it. And there's times where work gets very busy and I drop the ball and my finances look much messier. And then there's other times where I'm like much more on top of it, and much more in charge and much more confident that I'm saving enough or, or that my spending is is in hand, but it's definitely a work in progress
0: yeah i think it's 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 definitely a journey and because you you know the benefit of of doing it actually <laughs> when you don't have time to do it you you i mean i think it's the same for me you actually feel really guilty um oh, yeah. and and and, <laughs> and we shouldn't but um i think you know the knowledge is a big part and then it's it's being consistent with with your finances and doing it on i don't know like a monthly basis a quarterly basis whatever you know whatever works for you without putting too much pressure on <laughs> you know on on achieving like your goals goals and everything but i think it's yeah being a bit more organized you talked about facebook and social media and how that has also changed the the landscape when we look at millennials i think a lot of people are admitting that you know they're making impulse and 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 like purchases because of you know their feeds like social media feeds because of you know maybe influencers their fear of missing out What role um, do you think social media has played in our attitudes towards money and managing our personal finances and and how can we use social media to, you know, maybe motivate ourselves or learn more about money?
1: I think it's so so key in both positive and negative way, actually. I think it's really changed the landscape of personal finance and also how we spend. I mean, on the negative side, and I know this myself and I think it's true of most people, there's something uniquely weird about the scroll and how if you take something like Instagram, how you know you can like open one eye in the morning and look at Instagram if you're you know if you're not being sensible and putting your phone in another room, and like within two minutes you can have seen like holidays you want to go on, clothes that you want to buy, food that you want to order, other people seemingly having much more than you, or just the temptation is kind of there in a way, in a way that. Isn't realistic to the way we, you know, we live in normal life, not digital life. So I think there's something about that, how much you can consume very quickly from lots of different people, that it makes you want to spend a lot. And we've become used to that. But you know, if you look back to when pre-social media, if you're as old as I am, you know, you'd read magazines and look at like nice clothes you want or, or nice holidays you want, but you weren't absorbing them all at the same time every day. So I think it's it's harder to not be tempted to spend or to think that others have more or we know that a lot of influencers don't buy the stuff that they that they're wearing or that they're doing that they get given it for free but it's hard to remind yourself of that when it's just an unrealistic portrait of of lifestyle especially for young people and I've always thought this you know like most people in their 20s can't afford 300 400 pound dresses or really expensive sort of 45 pound scented candles or whatever but they seem to be so much part of young people's lives presented through influencers on social media and it's just not realistic when you look at how much the average salary really is So that disconnect I think is a bit problematic
0: um talking about the maybe the you know our gener- younger generation or like the millennial maybe Gen Z and that's you know the audience of your book, what are the main like money issues people are facing at the moment and and what are some of your recommendations? so I know there's there's a lot, but maybe what are the maybe the top three money issues people are facing at the moment?
1: I mean the housing crisis is the biggest one, and I think so much feeds into that so uh, the relationship between the cost of housing and how much we earn has really broken down or our earnings aren't rising fast enough. And they haven't been for the last 10, 15 years compared to the the price of property. And so that feeds into into so much things like relationships, for example, You know, so many more young people are relying on family to ever afford to buy their first property or even to rent a property. And obviously, there's only a small percentage of people whose parents are wealthy enough to be able to, to help them with that. So that's something that is a constant concern and and we're not shifting enough away from house ownership or property ownership being the ultimate goal because it's still very precarious to rent. So that's definitely the biggest issue and has been for a long time. And I think we'll continue to see that being an
0: issue. And and can I ask you on, on that? A question that I that I often get is, I mean, obviously, it's it maybe also if you live in big cities, it's very expensive to buy a property. Many people will, you know, it will take so much time to actually put together a, a deposit. But should investing in, in property and buying a home be still like the, the top goal? Like, you, you know, maybe the, the previous generation had or, or maybe mm-hmm. can we do something else with with, with our money, I know, you know, we're not here to give financial advice. Everyone has different circumstances. But what are the maybe the pros and cons of, of owning a, a property? And what can you do if you, if you can't, you know, buy this property now?
1: I think there was always this assumption that house prices would always rise. And therefore, it was always a good investment to buy a property. And that has definitely remained. And we don't know that that's always going to be the case. But what we do know at the moment is still that rent tends to be more expensive than a mortgage. And obviously, with a mortgage, you're sort of investing in an asset, whereas with rent, you're paying that money to someone else, and you're never going to see it again. So I think there is still a huge amount of security available from buying a property, owning that asset, and often ending up saving money because you're paying down a mortgage uh, at a, a lower rate than the amount of rent you're having to to find so uh, as it stands at the moment in lots of parts of the country buying a property is still a good financial decision but I think there's too much emphasis on that being part of our life journey owning a property and that being a, a sort of mark of success or adulthood because lots of people just won't be able to afford it because their jobs or where they earn money is in an area that where housing is hugely expensive like London, in the southeast. Maybe that will change as more people work remotely, and that'll be an interesting potential consequence. I think of the pandemic has it made us all realise we can live further away from from an office or workplace, and we don't need an office. But I also would sort of urge people not to feel like renting is always less good than buying property, because for many people it's not; it's more flexible. Committing to a mortgage is a big financial commitment. It it can tie you to an area, to another person, to a particular lifestyle or job. So I don't think renting is always bad. I just think there is a bit of an issue in this country, particularly that renting tends to be much more expensive and more insecure. So I think you have to look at your own financial situation and and, and think about how much rent is costing you and, and whether it's actually worth doing all you can to try and get that mortgage or whether actually there's other things that you want to prioritize and i think there's so much about money advice in general that like as i do in my book in your book we talk about the general principles and things that you should think about and things you should have your eyes open to but that doesn't mean that there's always a right solution for everybody there's just things that you should think about when you're looking at your own life or your own priorities so yeah i think you have to be open minded but we have to also be realistic that that renting can be very very insecure for a lot of people
0: yeah, no, I I agree with you and, and thank you for, for your points. What are your do you think other other challenges people are facing at the moment?
1: So debt is an ongoing one. Obviously there's lots of different kinds of debt and some debt like a mortgage or student loan debt can be something that, that is positive in the sense that it get you know it's it's worth it because you get a great education or you you can get that house because it is cheaper than renting. But there's lots of problem debt and I think lots of people don't realise how expensive it can be. We're obviously seeing buy now, pay later, which has been talked about loads. But I think the way that we shop and like we're talking a little bit about social media, the way that we're kind of tempted to click through and buy, maybe when we're feeling emotionally less strong, when we're scrolling our phone late at night or early in the morning, I think the way that we're shopping much more on our phone, much more without physical money or contactless means that we're getting into debt or maybe overspending more than maybe was the case, you know, in past decades, where it was actually more challenging to get into debt than it is now. So yeah, I think there's a, there's this kind of big debt crisis that we need to address. And again, it's about having your eyes open to how much debt is costing you. It's very easy. I know my own life when I've forgotten to clear my credit card bill. It's very easy to spend, and it's actually quite hard to work out how much it's costing you. Sometimes I don't know if you find this, if you actually try to figure no. out how much. Interest you're paying, or how many charges you've got—it's complicated, probably for a reason because it keeps us spending. But it's not great for your personal finances.
0: Yeah, and it's quite stressful to look into it. I mean, looking into your, you know, debt numbers is maybe the last thing you want to do, and screening your your bank account for for charges and and interest—that's—it's quite hard.
1: Yeah, it is hard, but it's such a fundamental part of saving and investing too. And we often don't—we kind of forget about that relationship between saving and debt. But often focusing on debt is one of the best ways to actually be able to save in the long term because debt is so expensive. But you know the cost of living is high and people are really—we know from 2020—people are really struggling to um, survive on low salaries. So I think it's also really important that we we are able to be more open about debt. And going back to the social media point, I, I talked about like the negative side of it, but there's so much positive stuff happening on social media, especially around debt and this idea of accountability and being more open about struggling with money and and these kind of communities like people like Claire Seal, um, who you've had on the podcast, who's brilliant, opening up about how easy it is to get into debt, how difficult it is to, to, to get out of it, but how there are practical steps you can take to do so and and acknowledging the emotional side of it and this you know, the the political side of it, the reality that it's not always about people living beyond their means. It's because Housing or food or childcare, things like that, are very expensive relative to salaries. So that's a good side of social media. This, like, I, the way that money is being discussed and shared, and people feel less alone. I think with with their own debts, for example, or or their own financial challenges.
0: Yeah. And um, what is the best? piece of financial advice you would give to you know maybe your past self or or what's the 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 most important thing you've done for your finances I
1: think apart from financial knowledge about you know and the nuts and bolts of how financial products work I think starting young and starting somewhere I mean the the thing I wish I told my younger self she wouldn't have listened at all but it was just like (laughs) start saving start investing start a pension and all of those things and not things that you care about that much when you're in your early 20s. But the younger you start doing them, the better. Like something like, I just, I didn't have a pension with work when I started out because auto-enrolment hadn't been introduced. So I wasn't saving anything. And now I just think, oh, if I just put a little bit aside each week, each month, really only a few pounds, but if I, I could have taken a bit of pressure off now and in later life. So I think being aware of perhaps what you could be missing out on that makes a big difference when you when you get older and it's amazing how time passes and you have to just think a little bit about being kinder to your older self as well as forgiving your younger self. Definitely wish that I'd known about it and I was I' and just been a bit more confident about money as a subject and we were talking about how it's being presented in a different way in the media now and I think it's money should be seen as a sort of part of our health, part of our lifestyle planning. It's so fundamental to our everyday life and feeling terrible about money is so destructive i think it's part of like healthcare care and mental health care is being on top and in control of your finances as much as you can be and not beating yourself up about it too much because lots of people do and like i said almost everyone i meet says they're terrible with money and that's not true and there are steps you can take to to feel more at peace with it even if your finances are very challenging
0: so, what are the, the first thing you you do for you know for your finances? Is it is it around budgeting, or can you suggest like a, a few tools you've been you've been using that help you maybe in, uh, to build your personal finances?
1: Yeah, I mean, the truth is, <laughs> which I have to tell myself, to how many times I've written it, is that the only way that you'll get anywhere is like really understanding what's coming in and what's going out, and yeah. um, and so you do have to do a budget, and it's like that kind of awareness which I think is hard. It shouldn't be, but it is hard because we spend so quickly, we spend online, we spend without really thinking because we're busy and under pressure. So it is quite hard to really know where all our money is going. And especially if you're self-employed, it's almost, you know, unless you're really on it, it's quite hard to remember where it's all coming from as well. You know, you've got to really keep your eyes open and be on top of it and be aware. So you've got to start with the basics of knowing where your money is going. Obviously, it's much easier now than it used to be because you've got loads of banks that'll do it for you. Starling, Monzo, interesting kind of business banks too. I use Coconut, for example, which is quite a handy way of staying on top of your tax bills. Things like Money Dashboard, really good app that will show you all your accounts in one place. Yolt is also good. Emma, all these interesting apps that will do the work for you in terms of itemizing your spending and and showing you where it's going but you also have to think about medium and long-term budgeting too they don't just think about what you want now you have to think a little bit about like I said your future self so look at your pension have you got a pension how much is in it where do you want to be in 10 years time 20 years time 30 years time and try and uh, and make sure that you think a little bit too about the medium term. So if you are saving, you need to have an emergency fund, you need to have money to help you out of a hole if in a few months time, you lose your job and you think, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent or my mortgage. But you also need to think a little bit about saving beyond that for 10 years time that will come around quite quickly, your kind of financial goals where you want to be. So I think for me, it's very much about dividing into three short term, medium, long term. And Starting out by categorizing, itemizing all your spending. And I think you need to think it's a bit like skincare, right? Or dieting or exercise. Be realistic about who you are, what your personality is. The best diet, the best exercise, the best SPF is the one that you'll actually do or keep up with. And I think it's the same with money that don't be over ambitious about how much you'll be able to monitor your spending or how much you'll be able to save each month, because then you'll just give up and feel frustrated and then bury your head again. I think it's like starting incrementally and being a bit realistic about the kind of person that you are.
0: Yeah. And don't, don't put too much pressure on yourself. (laughs) Understand where, you know, where you stand. I think like doing this quick exercise of writing all your numbers, how much money you have, how much debt you have, and, and and then moving forward, like learning about, you know, your attitude. You spoke about money mindset. I think that's so important uh, before you can actually do anything else and, and understand, you know, what budgeting is fine for me, how much money am I able to save? Uh, am I able to, inv- to invest some of this money? So did you have to do some work around understanding what is money for you how how you you spend your money i mean you you said you're a spender i think we all like spenders and and savers how can you understand your your own attitudes towards money and and improve your your financial well-being actually and how will that then have an impact on you know practically how much money you can keep on your on your bank account
1: i mean i think it's really fundamental and we often don't examine our relationship with money even though it's lifelong and one of our most important and that's certainly the case for me I think you have to look a little bit about how you were brought up maybe some of the attitudes that that you were brought up with around money but, you know did you have lots of it when you were little did you have like not very much at all were your family frightened of debt were your family very happy to be in debt I think some of this stuff does filter into how you feel about it as an adult and also, I think you need to see money in the context of your family and your relationships. So, I think we often focus on money as being a very individual thing, but very few of us make any financial decisions totally in isolation because we are—we don't live in isolation, even if we're in lockdown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it's—it's it's thinking about the emotions, and for me, definitely attached to how you want to share your money or how you feel comfortable about talking about money with other people, where your financial priorities and goals come from. Do you feel that you want to earn a lot of money because you're very scared of not having any? Are there things that, if you look back, that make you feel very uncomfortable about how you grew up with money? So, I mean, they're quite big questions to ask, but I think we do, and I certainly ask some of these questions to myself. I think also understanding emotional responses to money so thinking a little bit about when I spend how did I feel and maybe putting in a few barriers to yourself so I have to do this so like if you know that when you feel really happy or really sad or really stressed or really bored that you tend to spend examine that a little bit and try and avoid the temptation to get your credit card out when you know it's been a long week and I think yeah try to disconnect a little bit between spending and how you feel and I think it's the same with earning money as well like asking for a pay rise or it's trying to slightly take the emotion out of it whilst acknowledging that it exists not easy thing to do but something that understanding how an ISA works won't tell you you have to look inside yourself a little bit I think
0: so people need to read your book and then you know work on their money mindset I think it's a lot of homework and and yeah a lot of things you can do on your own even if I mean most people don't don't have access to to a financial advisor, you, it would be amazing if we if we could all meet, you know, good advisors. But unfortunately, it's not the case. So I think working on you know your your emotions, understanding with money, and then learning the the practicalities and the you know technicalities. I think that's that's like a massive step forward. I have some quick fire question for you. What is your top financial goal at the moment?
1: I have loads. I think my ultimate <laughs> financial goal is to get to a point where I don't, not that I don't worry about money or look at the cost of things, because that's completely unrealistic. I'm sure I would always do that. But to be in a comfortable enough position that money doesn't have to be the number one dictator of the work I do, for example, or the decisions that I make, uh, that's quite a privileged position to be in. So we'll see if I get there. But I think that would be my ultimate idea of of sort of financial freedom not to have loads of money but to have enough that i don't have to worry about it too much and that i could have a, like a really comfortable work life balance as a freelancer i've just started in pottery <laughs> such a millennial cliche and i absolutely love it and i've and and i just thought oh wow wouldn't it be great if you could not have to work always for money you could have a blend of a bit of work and a bit of doing creative pursuits that that aren't about finances. So that's my ultimate financial goal, I think, being able to do a bit more pottery alongside the work that I'd like to do. And I think at the moment I'm focusing on saving more in order to do that, so making sure that I've got a safety net because this year has taught me and everyone, I think, that we just do not know what's going to happen. And however much money you're earning at the moment and however great your situation at the moment, it can change overnight. You can get ill, people you love can get ill, work, the way we work can suddenly change. So I think it's it's for me, making sure that I'm protected from future shock is very important.
0: Yeah. What's uh, the best financial decision you've ever made?
1: I think probably meeting my boyfriend, now husband. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you I didn't marry him for the money. But I talk about this a little bit in my book and, and I think it's something that's really important to acknowledge that sometimes you know, I would not live in the flat that I live in. I probably wouldn't own a property were it not for the fact that I met somebody who could help me a bit financially and that we could have good conversations about money and we could work together on it. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and to to think about that within our own finances, that the relationships that we have are quite fundamental to whether our finances are, are good or bad. Sometimes that's not stuff we can control. So I am very lucky in that I met Somebody who could help me get to where I'd like to be. That's my amazing. husband. <laughs> <How> <laughs> Thank you for sharing <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> and now, the worst financial decision.
1: oh There have probably been many. I think not starting a pension soon enough, which is a bit of a boring answer, but I think that's representative of like a sort of complacency that I had in my twenties and early thirties um, that I'm working on of, of just of not starting saving young enough and of not owning money for myself, spending a little bit too much, I think. What is a financial independence for you? I think it's the same as my financial goal, really. It's, yeah. it's not being in a position where you're unhappy, but money is keeping you there, whether that's a job, whether it's a relationship, whether that's somewhere that you live. I think there's many people who don't have the option of, of leaving a relationship or a job or, or an area where they live because they're financially tied to it, So. That's ultimate financial independence, I think.
0: Um finally, what are the things you spend the most money on? Clothes, probably. I love clothes,
1: or maybe the most I've wasted most money on is probably clothes that that I've got bored of. That's not happening at the moment. I'm on a no spend during lockdown because no one's seeing my clothes, so I'm probably spending I'm probably spending most money on supermarket shopping at the moment. To be honest, yeah.
0: <laughs> wine to get me through. <laughs> Uh, Laura thank you so much uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation maybe finally can you tell me you know what's what's next for you you mentioned a book you know how can we can we support you and what are you working on
1: so yes yeah, so next to me is another book I'm hoping it's going to come out in 2022 so what this space it's looking more at say the chapter in my book on money and love it's and the stuff I've talked about a little bit about the importance of looking at money in our relationships so that's the topic but I'll Exciting. hopefully to, yeah so I'll hopefully be able to speak <laughs> about it more soon so I think that's going to keep me really busy this year but I must say I, I, I write a column in Grazia called Life Admin with my money tips and I'm doing lots of journalism still hopefully and as I said the the new version of Money User's Guide has just come out and maybe I'll make it over to America at some point to <laughs> learn a bit more about American finance too that would be good that'd be fantastic
0: Aurora, thank you so much can we find you maybe on uh, on Twitter and Instagram yes yeah. so
1: I'm at L Waitley on Twitter and at Laura Waitley on Instagram so please follow me and you can message me and I'm always it's always nice to hear from people and hear what their questions are or it does inform what I write about so I love I love to hear from
0: readers Thank you so much. We'll add all the resources in the notes of the podcast and Money by Laura Waitley is available. It's a Sunday Times bestseller, but you can get a new version with a, with a new chapter. If you need anything, you can email me and I'll send your message to Laura and you can find her on, on Twitter and Instagram. Laura, thank you so much. I really hope we can have a little coffee together (laughs) (laughs)
1: anytime
0: soon. (laughs) Thank you
1: so much. Your podcast is so brilliant. I love it. So It's an honor to be on it. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. And see you soon. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespa.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at at emilyadvestspot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.